Hello, everybody, and uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to LSE this afternoon for the talk by uh, Richard Sennett on sociology as literature. I should just say that Richard's arrived this morning from New York City with a slightly delayed flight, um, so particularly pleased that you've got here and are going to speak to us this afternoon. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm also at the LSE, and I'll be chairing the event give a brief introduction to Richard, of course, then hand over for Richard to give his talk, uh, and then moderate the questions afterwards. I'm assuming that for most of us, it's almost unnecessary to, to give a, an introduction to Richard. He is, after all, one of our leading public intellectuals. Uh, many of you will know him as, I've got to know him through reading some of his classic texts, uh, particularly, I think, going back to the 1970s co-authored book on the hidden injuries of class, and then perhaps more particularly, uh, The Fall of Public Man. Uh, since that time in the 1970s, Richard's produced a large number of very well-received, very well-regarded books, which, which I think, I haven't read them all, I have to be honest, but developed... Uh, <laughs> Wasn't that a novel by Rushdie? Um, develop a, a, a common... In, in some degree, a, a, a common narrative about the, the way in which lives that should properly be human are being restricted by a very compressed account of the public sphere, the changes in the way in which we consider what it is to be private and to deal with strangers, and restructuring of work practices, particularly as capitalism has become more flexible, to use that favoured word. Um, some of Richard's uh, more recent books include The Corrosion of Character, Respect, and The Craftsman. And I think that their titles themselves are very evocative and tell us something about his concerns both with what it is to be human and his concern that sociology shouldn't just retreat into a rather arid landscape defined by the concerns of positivism, but rather has to engage with normative and, and moral questions. Uh, many of you will know that part of uh, Richard's academic biography. What I found astonishing reading respect, as I was doing a few weeks ago before I knew that I was going to be introducing Richard today, is that I guess we all have extraordinary biographies, but Richard's is perhaps more extraordinary than most. Uh, he grew up initially in the Cabrini Green projects um, in uh, just west of the, the Gold Coast in Chicago in the 1940s with his mother, uh, when it was, I think, uh, an experiment in urban living that was meant to integrate uh, both blacks and whites before it became, I guess, by the 60s and 70s, a sort of urban dystopia. Um, when Richard was a boy, he was a very accomplished, still is, very accomplished musician and a cellist and moved to New York City uh, as a young man to make a career, I think, as a professional musician. Uh, there he met some people that have become, since that time, very well known in the classical music landscape. Uh, but unfortunately, early on, developed problems closing his left hand. Uh, that difficulty in closing his left hand, which was not corrected at that time by surgery, I think it has been perhaps yeah. since, allowing you to, to go back to the cello as well as the piano kind of drove you back perhaps uh, more directly to an academic career University of Chicago and a PhD in 1969 at, at Harvard University uh, very much to our advantage 
Um, in, in addition to Richard's uh, academic writings, he's also well known, of course, for his performances on radio. He's been interviewed many times. I think he has a tremendous sense of place and attachment to cities like Chicago, New York, where he's also a professor of sociology at NYU, uh, and of course here in, in London. Uh, what I didn't know until I read Respect is that Richard is also a published novelist. And in fact, I'm going to have to look at my notes here, um, wrote three novels in, in the 1980s, Palais Royal, An Evening of Brahms, The Frog Who Dared to Croak. I don't know if you've written any since or why you stopped writing novels in the 1980s. I know you're not the only academic at LSE who writes novels, but Meghnad Desai, uh, an economist, also has written at least one novel. Uh, but given that extraordinary uh, intellectual biography, uh, I think we're very lucky this afternoon that Richard has made it back from New York City and is going to talk to us on the topic of sociology as literature. Well, I'm really glad to um, talk to you about this subject. I, um, I'm going to read to you, which I don't usually like uh, to do, but I had to explain a couple of years ago uh, uh, what I do as a sociologist and uh, why it doesn't read like sociology. And so I had to sort of really crystallize my thoughts and write them down. And those I will share with you in this paper. Um, and I'd love to get comments from you and, uh, about this slightly autobiographical, but that's all right. Um, two subjects in the past have really or oriented my own research. That's work and place. I wanted to know how people labor and how they make a home. And to find out about both, I preferred talking directly to workers and to city dwellers, face to face. When I couldn't do this, using first-person historical accounts. So I dwelt on experience, which is a basic category in the philosophical school which I belong to, which is pragmatism. Now, pragmatism does not mean practical in the strict problem-solving sense. In the history of, of this philosophical movement, it's focused on lived experience the germ in a way that the Germans expressed by the term erlebnis, that is being open to new experience and trying to interpret it. It dwells less on strategic practice, which is expressed in the German word erfahrung, uh, kind of experience, which is kind of knowing navigation of the world. And because pragmatism is valued open experience, of course it's had to emphasize the interpretations that people make of things that come to them that they didn't expect or that were beyond their power to deal with strategically. What I want to describe to you is a way of practicing cultural analysis which is built up on this philosophical base. Better said, I want to make an argument to you that sociology can be understood 
uh, as a form of narrative interpretation, interpretation of the narratives that people make of their own experience. And it's in that sense that so, uh, sociology is a form of literature. It's about the ways in which people make up narratives for what they live and how uh, they interpret them. Um, now, this, can, this way of looking at narrative carries its, its own discipline. The discipline is more than a matter of writing clearly uh, because it involves direct interviewing people. Um, it's an attempt to transfer to the page a verbal narrative, uh, which is often very incoherent, full of gaps, full of the hesitations and confusions that attend, attend most experience. Um, let me say something, however, about what this subject might have first suggested to you about how to write for the public. That is, how to write as a public intellectual, a term that makes gives me the hives. It's true that from the time of Montaigne to rough, roughly that of Tocqueville, it would have been taken for granted that an analyst of social life should be committed to the craft of writing. Largely, this was because early modern society had a verbal blind spot, encased in rigid, fading social categories of hereditary station. The dynamism and energy of a more modern social order were difficult to describe, even to name. European conquerors of foreign lands, like the Conquistador de las Casas, had to strain to describe the unexpected complexity and richness of the people whose lives the conquerors were destroying. At a later time at home, Montesquieu needed to employ the resources of allegory and Persian letters to shock his fellow Parisians into an awareness of the localness and limits of European culture. Even in the dismal science, apologies to the economists here, Adam Smith needed great verbal gifts to make his contemporaries aware of the power of markets which were coming to rule their lives. And finally, Tocqueville's democracy in America is laid out quite consciously, I think, on the model of Homer's Odysseus, a voyage into the foreign land of equality. Now, the literary powers of all these writers thus aroused in their readers a sense of the social as a problematic category. The writing made a disturbing gift of that consciousness, which is to say that the very strengths of their writing helped to create a kind of public realm as Hannah Arendt conceived of it, a realm certainly of shared collective intelligence, but more than that, a realm in which consciousness was dislocated Today, many social scientists are menaced by exclusion from this public realm due to their own feeble powers of expression. This feebleness is not simply a personal failure. The history of academic institutions seeking to protect their freedom, specialization, and bureaucratization of knowledge are general sources of intellectual isolation, 
trying, which means trying to make coherent, fixed, something which in the form of their labels is open and unknown. Um, and it's this, I think, that makes the depth of what researchers know become incommunicable. It's due to a lack of expressive tools, tools to express shift, dislocation, to arouse a sense of imminence. Um, and what the public is left with is this kind of codified knowledge, the husks, the surfaces of knowledge, as in, I dare shudder to say this, as in policy planning. We won't go there. Uh, all writing is political in just the way a writer relates to readers. I've noted, with, I've noted with dismay that when social scientists attempt to address the general public, they tend to survey and to simplify. That is to talk down, that is to condescend. The reader is excluded from being a critical partner in the writer's own thinking. Whereas for de Las Casas, Montesquieu and Tocqueville, all treated their readers more as equals. The politics of talking down to the reader evinces also an error in the understanding of writing itself. People who commit this error may imagine that they can know before they write. They will gather their data and their thoughts, and then, as the English phrase has it, write up the results, displaying to others what they have already thought through. Whereas the act of writing should be a laboratory, a workshop for thinking, not an after-the-fact presentation. When we try to write expressively about society so that others are aroused, are moved, are dislocated by what we write, we encounter a very special set of analytic problems. And it's those I want to talk to you about today. That is, how can you avoid um, the kind of codification which breaks not only uh, a connection to your reader, which is arousing, but also tells a kind of wrong story about social experience itself. So I'm going to talk about the craft of writing. I'm going to describe to you issues drawn from my own experience, which certainly wouldn't hold myself up as a shining example of writing well. And certainly uh, there are many other solutions to the problems of expressive social science writing than those I've found. But the problems themselves, I would claim, are generic to socially-minded literature. Um, let me first talk about craft. I'd like to lay out to you four challenges I faced in my writer's atelier. These concern issues of authorial voice, narrative, of course, arousal, and generalization. A novelist or playwright has also to deal with this quartet because the fundamental problems of literature. The writer of nonfiction, however, has to address them in special ways. Let me first talk about voice. Voice names who is speaking to the reader. In literature, voice is recognized most simply by the use of I or we, third-person voice. Uh, 
dead third-person voice in the hands of a great novelist like Flaubert makes the author's presence felt on uh, every word on the page without the author ever speaking personally to the reader as I or we. In nonfiction writing, however, handling the issue of voice is a tricky and often frustrating challenge. Say the writer wants to bring to life on the page the experience of a capable woman working for an incompetent male boss. The sort of boss who takes three-hour lunches, leaving her to deal in the meantime with all the tough problems in the office. Purely <laughs> To make literature of this situation, the writer is going to have to do more than just enumerate circumstances of the sort I just named. The writer will have to probe what incompetence means to the long-suffering worker, that is, give her a voice. The writer could simply quote her complaints, but illustrative quotation is a static, dull procedure. I think this is the greatest error that students who try to write literary social science make, to give static to, to give illustrative uh, quotations. In fiction, individuals who were portrayed simply as an instance of a category, like the suffering worker, would be dead characters. And this is true in non, of nonfiction as well. The writer wants to enter into the rounded, distinctive life of another person, which requires giving that person an interpretive voice struggling to make sense of his or her circumstances rather than simply giving voice to a representational picture of those circumstances. Now, a very thorny social, do you understand what I'm saying about this? In other words, if you do an ethnography and you go out and you find subjects who tell you this is what it's like dealing with that, that, that boss, he stays out for three-hour lunches. Um, and then you say that this woman worker is oppressed by the boss. That's very static because you haven't gotten into what reflexively she would think about her own position, what she thinks about him. You haven't opened up the kinds of questions that she is opening up in her own mind, which, which are, if he's like this, what do I do? And that's the point at which when you enter into that kind of question, which is about her interpretation, uh, that you begin to get into something where you're creating literature. Now, I should say that a thorny social issue lurks in this literary effort. In the 19th century, Wilhelm Dilthey first called for social science to enter the terrain of how people act as their own interpreters rather than the social scientist doing the analytic interpretation for them. This is the domain, in Dilthey's words, of Verstehen. A humanist, he believed people are competent interpreters of their lives. He rejected, in particular, the idea of the stupid lumpen proletariat advanced by bad Marxists. More, Dilthey was convinced that empathy will on the part of the researcher open the gates to understanding. Empathy for the oppressed would bring writing 
which would beget insight into how they think, feel, and act. In his view, then, personal character rather than craft is what counts. That is, you've got to have empathy rather than writing skill to do this. In the kind of research I do, based on interviews and first-person historical accounts, this matter has proved more vexing. Early on in my career, I studied the lives of white working-class adults and adolescents, many uh, who were then and still remain hardcore racists. These views are repugnant to me. More recently, I've studied engineers and computer programmers whose technical passions are largely impenetrable to me. Sheer emotional empathy or mental identification in these cases cannot alone suffice. In the field, I am a rather combative interviewer, arguing with my racist interviewees and challenging inter interview engineers to justify why a technique or procedure matters. Arguing conveys that I take them seriously, which in fact I do. And this translates directly into the act of writing. Somebody who shares my working practice will want to make use of a fictional as-if, reporting what he or she has been told as if the writer were also a racist or a technician, and then step out of that as-if, judging or posing naive questions. The writing which results should convey a doubling perspective. On the page, there should be more than one active interpretive voice. This is a fundamental working procedure for me for the last 40 years of, 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 of my investigations, which is you do try and identify, empathize, understand when somebody tells me, you know, no nigger should get welfare understand where that's coming from. And then, as one would do in the interview, you say this outrageous. And that it actually works much better than, you know, just being sweet white people and say, oh, I can see where you're coming from. Then what gets on the page is a dialogue. And that dialogue becomes something which is more than one authorial voice. So the principle of this is the procedure is almost a forward interpretation, in my case through a challenge, or other ways to do this. So that what gets on the page is not somebody speaking who's representing a position, but somebody who's speaking to another person. So authorial voice in social science, I think, has to have this dialogical quality to it. And that takes craft. Let me say secondly something about narrative. The subject of narrative waves a big warning flag about considering social science as literature. Whereas the novelist is wholly in control of events, the social, uh, in the real world, uh, this is not the case, and so the social writer is not. And this truism has a more particular application action in a novel accumulates. This is obvious in the classic well-made novel embodied, let's say, by George Eliot's Middlemarch or Thomas Mann's Boonbrooks. In these narratives, each event prepares for what comes next. 
The progress of events loads the incidents of action so that the action moves forward. Accumulation also operates in more modern novels like James Joyce's Ulysses or in the works of Thomas Bernhardt. You need to read these books through to the end to make sense of their fragments. Now, life histories and collective history do not possess this narrative literary property. Individual life histories, histories are often incoherent, a jigsaw of parts which do not fit together. Collective histories may not accumulate in value. To give you an example of each, many of the workers I've interviewed in the new economy have short-term jobs rather than long-term careers. They're obliged to change what they do and where they do it by global forces beyond their control. Though they, they work very hard, they lack a coherent uh, narrative about the work itself because the time itself is serial rather than accumulated. Lack of accumulated meaning is something I've noticed most recently in interviewing go-go financial managers in New York. I'm just in the middle of a study of people in Wall Street who have lost their jobs in the crash. Uh, the collapse of firms like long-term capital management a decade ago, bursting of the dot-com bubble a few years after, and now the people we're studying were in Lehman Brothers, uh, has made little impress on these, man, uh, on these managers. Their behavior neither conditioned uh, by prior, uh, their behavior is not conditioned by prior disasters. They live entirely in the present. Uh, experience is not accumulated for them in bad Very strange phenomenon. Uh, it's a series of fragments, and it's not a failure of interpretation on their part. That's how capitalism, finance capitalism, structures work time. Faced with such incoherence, the social writer might want to chronicle its moments, but not impose a narrative upon the mess. But this would be to do social reality a disservice. Human beings think in stories in order to understand cause and effect. That is, to give action uh, value in terms of its consequences. Moreover, in everyday narrative, in everyday life, narratives can help people think strategically in their foreign way by projecting different outcomes onto an action that somebody might want to undertake. Strategic projection requires imagination, not of one certain outcome, but of many possible scenarios. And without narrative as a tool, social understanding would radically diminish. Um, so part of when I'm interviewing, the task is to challenge these people. So where is the narrative in this? It's not, it's not a natural question. They don't have to report to me that. I'm provoking that in them. Uh, when, as in modern capitalism, people are deprived of the guiding narrative, the writer's task is to identify and analyze these absences, to understand why a worker who has been fired or an investor who is ruined cannot connect his or her past, present, and future, and then provoke a discussion about that. 
You understand that the interviewer is never passive, ever, in this kind of work. Uh, this task of provoking people to think about an absence, in this case the absence of, of, of coherent time, produces a peculiar, peculiar narrative of its own, a story marked by gaps and omissions. The writer intrudes a narrative by asking what's missing and then telling what the uh, subject responds. In fiction, narratives of absence have marked the writings of Borges, Bernard, Thomas Bernhard, and Calvino. And today, I think these literary tools can help us make sense of a time-fractured political economy. In sum, a narrative differs from a history. The writer imposes consequent time. Silences or omissions in the speaking voices of subjects become themselves part of the story and part of the fieldwork. And to make this happen also requires craft. Uh, let me third turn to the subject of arousal. The editor of the New York Review of Books once said to me in rejecting an essay I'd written on Linux, the open source code, quote, I'm sure what you say is correct, but it just doesn't interest me. He's prone to that kind of statement. Very worthy, but very dull. Now, it's very easy to believe that the sheer importance of a subject will arouse readers, if not editors. In this case, open source is, after all, the future of computing. But there is no necessary connection between important and interesting. It's a real key issue in learning how to write social sciences literature. What's important may not be interesting. Sometimes writers respond to this dilemma by over-dramatizing an issue to engage others. They are prone to employ that much-abused word crisis to seize attention. If everything is a crisis, though, the word loses any meaning. So we have to grapple in fundamental ways with the nature of stimulation and arousal. My starting point is that curiosity and surprise are much more lasting stimuli, stimuli than dread and fear. Crisis calls attention to a subject, but curiosity takes the reader inside a book. And there are two methods available to the social scientist writer for stimulating curiosity. Classical psychological studies of curiosity revolve around the experience of cognitive dissonance, a condition in which there are contradictory rules and rewards for behavior. Caught in this double bind, human beings, like rats in the psychologist's laboratory, will pay close attention to their immediate circumstances. Seeking to work out the puzzle, curiosity is engaged, in other words, by dissonance. On the page, the presence of different dissonant voices, which I've described earlier, has the same effect. When we use the word texture to describe a piece of writing, we mean, I think, to invoke just this verbal layering of dissonances, which arouse, of differences, which arouse cognitive dissonance. 
And what this psychological research in cognitive dissonance reveals is that humans, or rats, caught in contradictions, <coughs> do not go into a state of crisis. They do not go berserk. Instead, they live with the contradiction by focusing on particular behaviors, seeking to manage these within the confines of a, a larger situation which they cannot resolve. In writing, we want to achieve the same kind of focus, setting up contradiction or dissonance in order to focus the reader on significant detail. That's a procedure. In other words, to set up dissonance, a contradiction, so that you focus in on the detail. This is a mental operation biologically implanted in us, and it's one that's quite different in, than saying there's a crisis because there's a contradiction. Thus, in writing up interview notes, I include bodily gestures and tones of voice as part of my data, if these are part of the signifying since these are frequently ironic or distancing comments on the actual words themselves. The dissonance between the shrug of the shoulders and the declaration of principle makes the reader pay attention, just as it has aroused me in the interview. Another practice which stimulates curiosity, so that's the first domain of how to make this, this what's called technically focal attention work. Another practice which stimulates curiosity revolves around tacit knowledge. This means the assumptions we take for granted, the behaviors we practice unselfconsciously. The social writer will work with these taken for granted, gradually surfacing them to the reader's conscious, consciousness by a process of mutation changing what everybody knows step by step so that it appears increasingly strange and provoking. Thus, when writing The Fall of Public Man, I explored the handshake, a seemingly mundane form of public greeting, connecting it in the 18th century to other bodily gestures of addressing strangers, then to habits of speaking in taverns and coffee houses. My reader, I hope, became more and more curious about the meaning of shaking hands as it became connected to hugging, kissing, and verbal salutes, as it was in the 18th century. This procedure of arousing the reader's interest also gave something to me. I began able to see the public realm as a realm of sensate physical experience. In place of dramatization, then, the socially minded writer wants to use techniques of cognitive dissonance and permutation to arouse interest in his or her subject in particular. Those are the two principles of arousing, uh, in my view, of, of arousing interest. Uh, organizing cognitive dissonance, both in the research and the writing, and permutation, so that something that's taken for granted gradually becomes stranger and stranger and stranger. There is a politics implicit in this writing. The language of crisis is cousin to the manifesto, to the pronouncement. The languages of cognitive dissonance and permutation are quieter, 
closer to everyday life. They invite the reader to engage rather than to agree. Now, of course, I do not mean to imply that we should always prefer the quiet politics of writing. Dramatizing is a necessary tool in any writer's craft. I mean only that this tool should be handled with great care. Michel Foucault does so, for instance, at the opening of Discipline and Punishment. Is that what it is in English? 78 Discipline and Punishment. In describing the execution of Damien, the would-be killer of Louis Cass. The circumstances of Damien's torture are grisly and dramatic. Foucault's art lies in connecting by permutating suggestions, elements in this scene to events and ideas which have nothing to do with an execution. I hope I've persuaded you by now that writing is something more than simply a means to an end. But what then is the inner purpose of voicing, narrating, and stimulating curiosity? And here I'd like to say something to you about generalization. This question leads me to the fourth element of social literature, the address to the problem of generalization. The practices of social literature I've so far described to you dwell on individuals and particulars. It would be perfectly correct to assert that, no matter how engaging, such experiences can make no claim to represent general social conditions. The critic will turn my own words against me. No one human being represents a social category. Great fiction, however, wants to commit just this mistake. The novels of Balzac and Proust invite the reader to make a metaphor of political corruption, uh, in Balzac's case, out of Vautrin's crimes, to read into Proust's Baron de Chaloux, uh, the posturing of Baron de Chaloux, the decline of an entire aristocratic class. We can't help ourselves from accepting the invitation to generalize. The American pragmatist C.S. Paris offers one explanation why. Categories of any sort are mental constructs. Social categories are particularly fragile mental constructs since a category composed of a million people is based, uh, uh, is based in any one person's consciousness on insufficient information. To construct a social category, we have therefore and necessarily to make a leap of what Paris calls radical induction from lived experience to experiences we could not have. This is a foundation of, if you like, the social science method of pragmatism, what he calls radical induction. Symbols make the leap of radical induction for us. Uh, be these symbols social statistics or their character and events in literature. Still, Peirce's precept doesn't explain what the writer might do to make personal experience resonate symbolically. In creative literature, radical induction may seem no less than an unfathomable secret of great art. In social writing, 
I believe concrete steps can be taken to induce radical induction, or at least I can describe to you the steps I've taken. The procedure derives from the experience I've had as a musician rehearsing chamber music with other players. In rehearsing chamber music, the musicians, of course, have to achieve a coherent collective sound, yet equally must preserve the distinctiveness of each instrument. If that balance can be struck, then each instrumental part seems to loom larger, mean more than when the player rehearses alone. Even though he or she is playing the very same notes alone that they'll be playing with other people. This is how a purely musical symbolic, uh, musical process of symbol making occurs in group rehearsals. The notes of each part are transformed in value while remaining the same in material fact. I've drawn in my sociological work on uh, just this experience of musical rehearsal. Even when I interview people individually, Typically, I will try to interview in depth about 30 to 50 people who share something in common, like the middle-ranking computer programmers I interviewed for the book The Corrosion of Character. I then ask them to talk about this shared condition. In writing about their varied interpretations, I try to stage something like a group rehearsal on the page, one in which individual beliefs and experiences mean more than played together with others. Hopefully, the reader later joins the rehearsal. If the work writing works, it does not, I want to emphasize, beget, generaliz beget generalizations about all programmers. Instead, it activates the process of symbolization in which their experience acquires more meaning, but more than individual meaning through association. In other words, when we do ethnographic work, what we're trying to do is to put different voices in juxtaposition with each other so that they are, seem to be talking to each other, uh, almost as though they were characters in the novel, in, in a sense, because take an individual interview and put it in the context of other ones. But what's going on in the reader's mind is a kind of symbol making which has very little to do with generalizations. It has to do with the creation of a symbol which represents this dynamic of interaction between different people. And that creates a larger sense of the whole. The distinction between generalization and symbol formation is a keystone of pragmatic philosophy. While the generalization is a fixed statement, the symbol is a process, a process which helps us relate experiences to one another. The distinction also matters in the everyday practices of social research. 50 hours of interviews produce about 1,500 pages of transcribed text, Proustian in size. The writer's craft lies in paring down this mass of paper until a balanced relation is struck between distinctive voices. As a practical matter, elimination is the important literary skill required of the socially-minded writer when engaged in forming a symbol. So what do you mean by that? 
it isn't it isn't full documentation saying and then they said this then they said this then they said this then they said this and even pairing that up if you could in our in our unemployed study we've got 180 people in it it's, it's about four it'll be about 4,000 pages of text it's impossible as a practical matter to give uh, a report on that which has been done. So a process of great excision has to go on and editing to find where people seem to be talking to each other, disagreeing, agreeing, developing, and so on. And that's artificial. Um, I've tried to show through these techniques of voicing, narrating, stimulating curiosity, and symbol making how the writing of social literature works as a craft. As in any other craft, inspiration is no god. Nor in this particular craft but humanistic empathy for a subject suffice. The social writers I admire, Walter Benjamin, Roland Barthes, Michel Foucault, Michel de Certeau, write quite differently from each other, yet all share an essential ethos of craftsmanship. All established a set of practices for their prose, but these practices evolved in the course of their careers. They could thus be making discoveries rather than simply demonstrating skill. And of course, all craftsmanship should have that aspiration. Good technique is not a fixed, closed system. I'd like to uh, put in a very summary form to you. Uh, I'm still trying to get this sorted in my mind. How, what this kind of practice of human sociology and literature is like. And uh, I'm sure I've left out a great deal that, that you will tell me about. But I'd like to just add a, a pendant to this about practicing sociology and literature in the context of practicing sociology as literature. In the context of um, just the status of, of this kind of uh, literary um, pursuit in modern culture. It's often said that ours is an age where images have come to possess more power than words. Computerized technologies have enabled the composition and manipulation of images, ways, uh, of images in ways unimaginable in the past. Critics fear that these technologies open up new possibilities for social and political manipulation on a global scale. But the power of the image has a different and more positive dimension in the social sciences. Many of my students now do research using still photography and digital video in place of weighty tomes that we produce through traditional ethnographic work. They offer these minute, they give you these minute data sticks containing hundreds of photographs or hours of computerized film. And this visual, it's amazing, it's, uh, how much can you put physically on this device because if you've ever been in my office junk text. This visual turn seems to me as a writer welcome. 
All four of the verbal practices I've explored with you are live issues in visual practice as well. We can see uh, as well as read, voicing, story making, the arousal power of cognitive dissonance, and associative synchronization. I welcome this shift not because the craft I've practiced continues in the new medium, but just because this new medium will in time alter these practices. Visual narratives, for instance, can deal with absence and silence, uh, as in the street photography of Thomas Strute, through lighting devices, which have no verbal parallel. Uh, and I've been very struck in the work my kids are doing that the play visual play between people that are able to document body movement and so on is something that is very um, present, it requires craft and editing so you can see it, uh, but it, it's more economical in a way in, in its expressive power than the enormous amount of words that are required to describe how two people, for instance, pass each other in the street. Uh, so I think this is all good. But there is, however, a challenge which I think younger people will face in doing visually what I try to do verbally. This challenge lies in making the viewer dwell in the image. The essential property about literature is that it slows up time, and indeed it suspends time as we read. Modern image culture is by contrast short-term time often a nearly instant parade of images. Modern image culture thus risks succumbing to a kind of attention deficit disorder. And what I think is going to happen in this next term, say as sociology, as film, is that the visual analyst will have to create a kind of counterculture to the surfing of images he or she will have to find new techniques for making visual experience indwelling as a way, in a way that uh, literary work is. Um, so I offer this just as a pendant, or a pendant to the issue about, about sociology as literature. The real issue is, I think, largely in looking forward how we can be better artists in practice of practicing social science. Whether we do it through words, um, or whether we do it uh, through film or photography. Uh, the separation between social science and art um, is something that, uh, in my view, uh, weakens the practice of social science itself. Because in the end, what we want to do is work expressively. And to do that, we need to learn the crafts of expression. And those crafts are simply different than the sort of normal social science, which emphasizes kind of, as I've said before, kind of after the fact writing up of something or a simple representation of words of the status condition of social actors. So 
these are just some ideas I wanted to put on the um, put on the floor with you. And I, for fairly short questions in groups of three, but it'd be better to do something rather different and uh, take questions individually and allow people without grandstanding to sort of develop their thoughts at length. Take one at a time, but if, if you feel that your question goes straight on from the previous one, put up your hand and then we'll put it over to, to Richard. There's a gentleman right there. Uh, just briefly, um, in fictional literature you have characters and plots what is equivalent of, you, you mentioned characters being your interviewee or your subjects of your research. What is equivalent of plot in, in sociological well, literature? Equal, the equivalent of a plot. Plot. That would be the uh, Well, if, if by plot uh, you mean the flow of event one into another, that is what a narrative, that's one part of the narrative. But, um, I mean, the, th the thing about literary plots is that simply, if you wrote out, for example, what happens to Leopold Bloom in the course of one day, right, uh, the actual uh, plot and the sense of the events are trivial. Even in some in in a book like Tom Jones, which is full of incident, the 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 incidents hold your attention only because of the way in which the characters are reacting to to events. Somebody's a horse stepping on somebody's foot, uh, a hand suddenly appearing on somebody's bosom, etc. Many of my friends who are fiction writers argue that, that uh, in fact, the whole issue of plot in the sense of just as a sequence of events is a, 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 a danger for writers. They assume that the story will take over and that the work of characterizing reaction and interpretation won't, you know, won't follow. Can I make one point about this? This is, uh, it, if you're a writer of history, what I've just said is much less true. And one of the interesting issues about this kind of, what you could call social anthropology, uh, or it is the distinction between history and uh, narrative that comes up here. This is not original thought to me. It's fundamentally a, uh, it was a distinction drawn long ago by Hayden White in a, in a, a seminal article on narrative in which he argues that histories cannot follow this anthropological form. That, that because the events themselves don't have this kind 
of trivial character. The events count. And that leads for historians into a thicket of its own, which is where's the agency? Right? But that's not our problem. You know, it's another kind of writing. There's often, I mean, go on about this, but there's often a tendency among people who do humanistic social science to think that it's all of a piece. And it isn't. You know, what anthropologists do with time is necessarily different. Sociologists do with time is necessarily different than the responsibility of a historian to establish which event was important. So, I hope that, does that respond to your question? What else? Well, we'll go on. All can be done over drinks. Come down to the front, and you'll sort of come across the middle again. Richard. Another Richard. I thought your talk beautifully filled out what the early social, LSE social thinker Beatrice Webb called analytical imagination. Yes. And your point. Well, I don't know if it beautifully filled it out, but that's what she had in mind. Absolutely, I think that's right. Your point about humanistic empathy not being enough, I just thought it was fascinating. It reminded me of Adam Smith's version of sympathy, which is a kind of bifocal vision, where you imagine yourself in someone's shoes, and then you stand back and judge from your own point of view, having previously inhabited that other point of view. Is that what you're close to getting? Yes, I think that, remember in the theory of moral sentiments, he talks about the disinterested spectator? Well, that's half the story, and the other story is empathy. And what I would say about this is that disinterested spectators suggest that somebody who is quote-unquote more objective than the person who is engaged in a social situation, that would be a terrible error. You shouldn't do this kind of work if you believe that there's an objective truth which lies waiting to be found. For you, the realm of, there's some other realm of knowledge waiting for you. But this is knowledge which is made rather than found. That's a fundamental thing about this kind of approach. It's made in the research, and it's made on the page. And I think what Smith meant was that notion that the disinterested spectator is deeply engaged. But rather like me listening to people telling me how awful blacks are, is able to hear it, and then to say, you know, this is terrible. You should never say that. This is a really thorny issue once you get into this. Both sides of this, both the notion about making knowledge rather than finding it, but also the question about how you manage the relationship as an interviewer to an interviewee. Most interviewees are searching for what you want them to say. I mean, it's all, with my layman people, for instance, it's like, you know, so 
what do you think about the way Fold, Richard Fold was the head of the firm who let it go under? There are many other things he could have done to protect the firm. And when I ask people, what do you think about that? I can tell that they want to know what I think about it first. Because in an interview situation, there's a logic of the lawyer being interviewed, even if it's explicit as the interviewer makes it. Still, you think there's a hidden agenda. We all do this. What's he really after? Or she really after? And it just takes a lot of practice to get people to focus on forgetting you, even when you're arguing with them. So that this notion about giving them what they want disappears. And that's your subject becoming a disinterested spectator as well. Most of the people at Lehman, I am somewhat known in the US as one of the last remaining socialists. And most of the people at Lehman know that. So they gradually have to suspend the notion this is a university professor who's also fairly well known as a socialist who's interviewed. And they do it. And so it's a very delicate, it just takes time to achieve. Anyhow, I wondered what I was at war. Two there, I think one just behind you as well, George. Richard, thank you very much. I'm intrigued by this idea of sociology or social science qua images. And what strikes me as a kind of problem with this, just intuitively, is one's own photo album, which has an enormous amount of surplus meaning to you, to oneself, but has virtually no meaning to anyone else. And surely that's one of the problems of images and the great advantage of writing. That good writing brings to the other your experience. And I'm having difficulty wondering, for example, let's take one of your books or one of Tony Giddens' books. How would you imagine an image-based sociology capturing some of these? I can tell you what my students are doing. And here, the tool that they have of their craft is Photoshop, which has realized the kind of image-based sociology. I have two students in New York who are documenting Broadway, the great shows of Bristol Street in New York, photographing it from one end to the other. It's a very long street, it's four miles. And the camera is, it's still photography, and then the images are cropped. They're all at the same height, and the depth of field is the same, and the camera width is the same, and the angle of lens is the same. And they're going all along Broadway. It's a huge archive of what happens in the street. They then use Photoshop to elide 
and edit these images so that whenever they think there's a shift in the social geography of the street, that comes next to something that came before. So for instance, as you move from 23rd Street to 28th Street in New York, you move from what is essentially a, a, a kind of dead office area into the center of New York's Korean life. All the images, all this, the distance in between is eliminated by Photoshop, and it begins to read as a narrative. You see one kind of, uh, this is the bottom of, of the fashion district of 23rd Street. And then as though it were simply the same street in continuity, even though you've eliminated five blocks, you simply have a Korean thing. So you make a photo strip. These are 30-foot photo strips. Quite, that's quite a big photo strip, uh, which reduces this several miles to something that reads as a social narrative. And it's got little flags about where the cuts are, which is good. It doesn't read as though it's simply we're representing the street. So that's, that's a tool that makes an analysis, right? And the photographer has interviewed, intervened radically in that. It's out there, but they've made it conscious to mind by, by eliminating all the stuff in between. It's a very arbitrary choice. And the arguments that we've had about this is, you know, why take this out and why not? But then that becomes a tool. You're able to read with your eyes the narrative of the street and its changes in a way that you could never have visual consciousness by walking along the roadway. You simply wouldn't register it. So that's one way of doing this. Film is a much simpler answer to the question. I mean, ethnographic film goes back to the also an LSE tradition in the 1930s. This was one of the first places in Britain that actually used ethnographic film. And uh, many of the same techniques that uh, uh, an art filmmaker would use are used by ethnographic filmmakers as well. So it can be done, but it requires craft. And what it requires is breaking the notion that we often have in our heads that visualization is innocent. And after uh, Photoshop, we can never believe that again. There is no visual, tr objective visual truth out there that we see in images, if there ever was, by the photograph. So that's, that's one way of doing this. So my question relates to your point around narrative narrative as a sort of method. Yeah. Um, one of your kind of big claims, particularly with your current work uh, around these kind of new new spirit of capitalism type characters yeah. in the finance industry, is that they live these incredibly fragmented lives. Um, and would it seem to be quite strange to try and narrativize their lives and impose this kind of narrative framework on these highly fragmented experiences of life? So in some ways, maybe you're bringing kind of experience of life which they don't actually have to bear on lives. Yeah. Well, that's what I, it's a very good question. Uh, that's why I say what this is not, the act of research, the act of writing 
are connected here. Since I think their lives are fragmented, I tell them. And then the discussion about, I'm present in that, you know? I'm making that issue surface. I'm not taking it as found. Because they're often, they've naturalized this. This is just a natural thing to do. You work for six, eight months, and you buy. So. so when you denaturalize it in the interviewing process, you're then producing an interpretation. Some of these people uh, immediately uh, that I've talked to, uh, this has to do with the fact that they're, they've lost their jobs at Lehman, and as you know, in the financial, all London and New York will have financial sectors that will shrink by about 30 to 35%. So they can't recover what they had before. Sometimes, by saying to them, where's the narrative in this? What holds your life together? They'll say, well, that's what, I that's what I want to do now. I want to get off the rat race. I want to somebody told me, I did some interview on that Tuesday, uh, somebody had worked out absolutely the ways to run an organic farm of 14 acres so that he could be making $200,000 a year. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's that Afarum kind of narrative. They want to see a, an alternative strategy. But I've surfaced that. Other people will fight with you and say, that's very old-fashioned. Careers are, are dead. But now you're having something which is a live discussion. And it becomes actually the subject of the research because they're interpreting now rather than taking for granted something. You know, they're thinking about it because they're arguing with me. Uh, and that's why I say this is created knowledge. It's very different to the notion that, frankly, I find a lot of here which is this kind of innocent positivism that there's a truth out there waiting to be told, you know? And as a school of social science, that's a disaster. You know, it's a very limited thing. But it, that's what I mean by producing it. Let me take one or two more questions. My jet lag really hit me. Three hours on the tarmac. Waiting for slums. One here, I'd like to abuse my power and ask you one as well. Okay, great. So I'm one of those kinds of people that take your approach and apply it to policy planning. Uh, well, we all have failed. <laughs> all, all life is, you know, uh, happens uh, to us all. No, I think I was very uh, fortunate in having um, uh, professors of mine long ago uh, uh, rate very importantly, writing expressively about uh, anything, including uh, society, and I, I find that um, that's a very difficult thing to pass on, but very important to do. Um, I suppose my, uh, I've got one concern about the, um, the presentation, even though I agree with so much of it, and one is, Bring one is, uh, I mean, I identify with, you called it uh, philosophical and sociological pragmatism. Yeah. People I was trained by are expressions of that and I picked it up in many ways. Um, one concern is it's, I don't see the narrative of that tradition in your presentation. It's, is it a static thing? Is it actually a changing uh, 
perspective, a changing approach as, uh, to uh, doing social science? And if so, have there been any important landmarks well, in that? This is a very long subject. I, as you know, well, maybe you don't know, uh, pragmatism has died out after the Second World War. It was a phenomenon associated, I think, with the Webbs. I think the Webbs were, they were certainly friendly to John Dewey, who was a great American socialist pragmatist. Died out after the Second World War, and it's been reborn in the last 10 years, Denmark, Germany, and the states with people like Richard Rorty, and possibly in the mirror of nature. Uh, and it's, I would say, shifted its bases from being concerned with education to being concerned with uh, research and strategies of research. And the reason for that is that in between this kind of moment of death and then its moment of rebirth, also, if you're interested in this, the best modern writing on pragmatism is by a man named Hans Joas, J-O-A-S. Well, yeah, it's a fantastic book. Uh, but in between, there was, you know, there, there was a whole phenomenological tradition which is close to us, and that had to be redigested. And it became redigested in, in uh, thinking about how we know about lives other than our own, rather than trick. Dewey was really an educator about everything else. So is James. Let's take a final question, which can be yours, and then <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, ask me over a cigarette. I wanted to pick up the question of persuasion and honesty, which I think was implicit in a lot of what you were talking about, particularly when you sort of couple Hayden White and the responsibilities of being a historian and being an anthropologist, and then the question of craft, and I sort of want to work towards two questions. Is it possible to write too well as a social scientist, and why do, few, why do so few social scientists perhaps invest in the craft of writing? What motivates the first one is... Um, Richard Bronk yesterday, a session that I attended, mentioned the work of Deirdre McCloskey on the rhetoric of economics. And whilst we can all agree that Keynes was a great economist, he also had the gift of the gap, and, and he was a great writer. We know this because of all the aphorisms that are still out there. It's not just in the long run that we're all dead. But my favourite is that bankers are the, the, most, the, the least realistic and most romantic of men. Um, <laughs> Churchill used to annotate some of his speeches by saying, Shank, here the argument is weak. <laughs> and he was a great orator. Now, it might not matter so much for a public speaker. Uh, you know, we can think about all the tradition from Swift all the way through to Arundhati Roy. But my first question is, can you invest almost too much in persuasion so that it actually contradicts some impulse to honesty in social science? And, and the second, uh, more prosaic question is, why is there so little investment nowadays, I think, maybe outside of anthropology and history and social science in writing work? Uh, well, those are two profound questions. <laughs> About the first, I would say that if you follow some of the methods that I have outlined in this talk, <clears throat> that what you don't arrive at is shouting. You don't arrive at rhetoric. You arrive at curiosity, 
you arrive at stimulation, you don't deal with the language of crisis and so on. And I think it's, uh, it's very important, particularly for writers on the left, uh, as I am, not to engage in a kind of moralization with their readers, telling them what's morally right. And for me, this, uh, everything that I've talked to you about today has been a kind of discipline for me in fighting the tendency to point that finger and tell you, you know, how bad capitalism is and so on. I want the writing to raise a question without ever becoming that kind of hectoring, you know, overbearing kind of writing. And I think these are techniques for doing that because you're staging, you're staging a discussion, a debate, a dialogic experience on the page. You know? There isn't just one point of view. There aren't representative cases of victims, you know, etc. You're trying to do deeper with that. Um, I must say, I think the answer to your second question has to do one with the is one that has to do with the status of societies, at least in sociology, of uh, lots of sociologists which is the notion that there's a contradiction between uh, clarity and profundity. Ours is a discipline that cultivated, particularly in its theoretical aspects, the notion that if something is really deep, it can only be uh, opaque. And it links to a certain kind of elitism, which is that only a few people really get it. I gave you an example of this with a writing of, uh, of my friend Bruno Latour. He, in French, his writing is a dream. It's clear, it's not simple, but it's clear, um, it's rounded, it's nuanced, straightforward, it addresses the reader. His English translators have made him uh, opaque, only a few people are really able to get it. Uh, they've, they've made him into a social theorist, a word he hates. You know? So I think, now this, I, I think it's a particular vice in sociology, just because it's been an exclusionary mechanism. The discipline reacted against the kind of social science that was done here before the war, which was very engaged with the world, um, made the welfare state, etc. The discipline reacted by saying, no, 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 we're experts, you know, we're, uh, uh, we're scholars. It's not such a close engagement. And that is an elitist move. But it's been so, it's saddening to me, what I've described to you with Bruno is true of Foucault, another absolutely transparent, not transparent, but clear writer in French who's been made into a kind of academic jargon in English, Hoppermaus. You know, you can go down the list. And I think it's a kind of turf creation and turf preservation that sociologists engaged in. Um, I think anthropology much less. 
much, much less, and history, of course, much less. This is a suffering of our discipline, which itself doesn't really have much internal focus anymore. So, anyhow, that's a very depressing way to end this <laughs> talk. Uh, you should still all want to become sociologists. So thank you very much for coming.